Trigger warning, this reading contains stories of physical and emotional abuse towards children and adults. We'll also be discussing suicide and gun violence. My name is Cece, and this is a story about abuse, motherhood, and learning to break free. This is not my story. This is a story I'll tell in my mother's words. This is part three of reading my late mother's handwritten composition notebooks, detailing the abuse she encountered at the hands of my biological father. These stories served as inspiration for her dissertation to receive her PhD in psychotherapy. And this story does get harder to tell, so please bear with me and thank you for listening. Here we go, part three. I've learned that the discontinuation of physical abuse does not mean that abuse has stopped. In fact, when the physical abuse stops, life with the abuser may actually become more hellish. If control cannot be maintained physically, which is really the quickest and easiest means of gaining control, then the abuser must put more thought into his or her controlling tactics, a little more effort but yielding the same outcome. Such was my situation. We know that strong emotion promotes strong psychological bonding, an excellent human trait that is responsible for solidifying attachment to those we love, including parent-infant bonding. Apparently, the stronger the emotional response, the stronger the bonding. Unfortunately, the emotions we feel need not be positive emotions for such bonding to occur. Ergo, the cliché, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference, the absence of emotion of any kind. This is one reason that multiple breakups and makeups and relationships seem to intensify the bonding of couples who appear to have many differences of opinion and who fight a lot. Emotional bonds are painfully broken. The tighter and more enduring the bond, the more pain it takes to break free. I have never felt such intense emotional and psychological pain as when I attempted to break free from my abusive partner. This is how it went. It was January. My son, who was in 8th grade at the time, had just learned of the suicide of one of his friends, whom he had seen and visited with the night before his death. I talked to my son about the suicide, about his friend and his problems, the selfishness of leaving everyone to grieve and to question as he had. He told me after talking that he did not feel the need to go to a counselor at that time, but he would let me know if his feelings changed. That night, as I entered the house, having just returned from class, I heard arguing upstairs. I heard my husband's voice, but I could not distinguish what he was yelling. Just then, my son came rushing downstairs crying, sobbing that he couldn't take it anymore. He flung open the front door and ran out, my husband running downstairs just behind him. He ran out the open front door yelling at the top of his voice, and don't you ever come back, you worthless piece of shit. Of course I ran out and called my son's name, asking him to please stop. He kept running. I wanted to go looking for him in my car. I told my husband, I can't believe you said that. He wouldn't hear of my going looking for him alone, though I pleaded with him to let me go alone, as I would have some chance of my son talking to me. As always, my husband flatly refused to let me go alone, threatening to pull the wires on my engine if I attempted it. 
The two of us, therefore, went driving. I called my son's name, hoping that he would hear me and come talk to me. It was cold, and I saw that he had no jacket nor shoes on as he bolted out the door. We finally gave up and went home. I told my husband that I didn't want to hear about what had happened. At that point, I had determined that practically everything that came out of his mouth was a lie. He persisted in telling me what a slob my son was, a worthless idiot, a lazy little bastard that didn't give a shit about the house. The fight had been about my son's messy room. He didn't phone that night, and I left for work the next day. I instructed my daughter to have her brother call me at work if he phoned or if she discovered his whereabouts. The phone call finally came that night. My son was calling to let me know that he was okay, but that he was possibly feeling suicidal. I asked him to come home, but he said that he couldn't do that yet. I thanked him for phoning, reminded him that I loved him, told him that I would set up an appointment the next day with the best therapist that I could find, and promised him that it was over between me and my husband, that we did not deserve it, that he did not deserve it. I assured him that everything would be all right, that he would be all right, and he promised to call back if he felt any worse. He wouldn't, however, tell me where he was. The following day, I phoned my therapist, whom I considered to be the best psychologist in the city, explained the situation to him, and he recommended an adolescent psychologist whom he said he would send his own kids to if they were still my son's age. I immediately phoned and set an appointment for the following day, which I kept with my son, having picked him up at a signed convenience store. We both visited with the psychologist, together and individually. He told me to get rid of our guns and to bring my son back at the end of the week, the appointment that was to be a turning point in all of our lives. My son felt better, and he willingly scheduled another office visit for the next week. Also, I cannot say that I felt better, though I was greatly relieved at my son's speedy rise from the abyss. No, I can't say that I felt better. Sad, really, and scared, defeated and depressed, and ironically, I felt all of these very strong emotions with a detached numbness. I know it sounds strange. How can one be numb and feel all of that simultaneously? I suppose such inner turmoil can cause all sorts of conflicting feelings. The shocking, conscious realization that one is about to bring a nightmare to life can be a numbing experience. Sensory overload, if you will. The psychologist helped me to understand that I was not being a responsible mother by allowing my children to live amidst the turmoil of our home atmosphere, that I could not continue to kick my husband out and then let him back repeatedly, as I had. This was devastating my children. I decided that I could not live like that any longer myself, and I had given him enough chances to change, to be nice to us. I decided that he did not want to change. His life was pretty good the way it was. Mentally armed with all these resolutions, I calmly and definitively told my husband that I wanted to divorce. He slept on the couch for a week, barely speaking, mainly sleeping and watching television. I presume he never left the house. I reiterated my request that he leave, and he said he would be out as soon as he could find a place to stay. Another week passed, no arguing, no passion, simply outward indifference, though I was in great pain on the inside. The date of the Aaron Neville concert approaching, my husband begged me to go, as we had planned to do months before. Going against my gut feelings and intuition, I agreed to go as friends because I wanted to see the concert. The night of the concert was to be one of the worst nights of my life, a definitive low point in my existence. We left for the concert at dusk. It felt like a date with a stranger. 
rather than an enjoyable activity with someone I'd spent 10 of the most intense years of my life with. The preceding month had seemed surreal, and the date with my husband served to remind me of my love for him. I felt sorry for him, I felt sorry for myself, but most of all I felt sorry for my children. Halfway home from the concert, I began to cry silently, hoping that he would not notice, pretending he couldn't feel my emotions as he had done so easily and so often for so many years. In response to his extremely well-chosen question, what's wrong, babe? I responded with, I hate my life. The truth of all truths, my grief would not be contained and came bubbling out in my tears and words. I hate my life. My tearful reminder of how hard I tried, how much I loved him and hated him at the same time for not being what he could be, what I wanted him to be for the kids, for me, for him, for us. The strained numbness, the surreal spinning of the month, no years prior would have been a relief in light of what I was feeling at that moment. Before I could even name my grief, I was sent reeling in shock by his intense anger to my response. He began yelling at me, calling me names amidst accusations and incidents past that I cannot clearly recall. I do remember volleying words about the death of our dear friend Ronnie, who had died of cancer on his 30th birthday. We arrived home with Ronnie being the topic on our discard. Entering the house through the garage as usual, I headed straight for the guest bath, closing the door but not locking it. It seems the whole of my relationship was punctuated with shock and surprise and the superlatives of passion. That night was no different and I was totally unprepared for what happened next. I was slumped on the toilet, crying into Kleenex when he burst into the bathroom, yanking me to my feet, twisting my arm behind my back. With his body behind mine anchoring me by the arm, he shoved the barrel of my own small handgun into my mouth, screaming, You hate your life? You hate your life? Well, let's just end it. I'll blow your fucking head off and then mine. You hate your life? You'll love your fucking life. Survival instinct took over since I didn't want to stop pondering. Knocking his breath out with my free elbow, pivoting and bolting out the bathroom door, I just did it. Unbeknownst to me, my son and his friend were upstairs and had heard the commotion. He came rushing to my protection with a baseball bat. As I nervously grabbed the receiver to dial 911, my husband ripped the phone out of the wall. My son yelled at me to run upstairs and use his phone. My husband retreated into the bedroom, apparently to grab the car keys and flee. The police arrived within five minutes. My husband was gone, so he was not arrested. My son, my older daughter, who arrived home within minutes of the police, and I all spent the night at the North substation. Our youngest daughter was at my parents' house for the night. We all sheltered her from the knowledge of this incident for two years, at which time we considered the sharing it vital to her safety. For abuse does not seize upon filing for divorce. An abusive marriage usually signifies an extremely abusive divorce, as all the threats that he had voiced over the years became realities. Often the situation worsens, as men make forceful last attempts to get their women back under control. Knowing what their men are capable of, a very real fear, can keep women in abusive situations. I had always told myself that I would hate to be on the other team. 
I used to try to make my husband see that we were on the same team. I remember saying to him several times, sometimes in utter frustration, but we're on the same team. We're supposed to be on the same team. I considered marriage to be looking outward together in the same direction. He appeared to deem marriage as access to a permanent sparring partner, one to claim dominion over legally, emotionally, physically, financially. If he had been honest with me about his real definition of marriage, I never would have married him. The truth is that he changed his definition of the sacrament after the fact, ex post facts, very unfair. But the unfairness constitutes a vital component of control over another human. I'd like to describe verbal abuse through the senses. Sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch, and intuition. I have previously described verbal abuse as looking at life, all of life, through a veil, a sieve or filter, if you will. At the height of brainwashing or training, everything that you do, sense, or think is filtered through the veil of possible reactions of the abuser. Living with a verbal abuser is likened to living as a prisoner of war, where every possible reaction of the guard must be carefully calculated, his wishes accurately predicted, his mood maintained or modified to the best of one's ability for the privilege of living. The problem with both scenarios is that his reactions and wishes are completely unpredictable and illogical, and his mood can change 180 degrees based on a mere thought that he has. Interpreting almost all his emotions as anger, and emotions by definition being illogical, it becomes clearer why an abuser is usually angry, and why it is impossible to predict when he will become violently angry, and why. My abuser's life motto was, expect the unexpected. I think he even surprised himself with his intense feelings of anger and rage. It must be very confusing to live life so unsure of how your body will respond to any given situation, almost like your own body betraying itself at any given moment and not knowing why or when it will turn on you. Self-destruction, extreme inner conflict, and turmoil much of the time. The lack of awareness of and control over one's mind and body must be frightening and disorienting. With fear being interpreted as anger, one can begin to imagine the almost constant and tremendous need for release of tension. Hence, the core of anger addiction and the anger cycle, near constant intense anger, needs a release. And an explosion of anger occurs, causing relaxation and a return of equilibrium, upon which time the anger begins to build again. As Patricia Evans suggests in her book, The Verbally Abusive Relationship, the abuser who is an anger addict reaps a double reward from exploding onto his victim. One, the relaxed feeling that follows the release of his built-up anger, and two, a perceived gaining or regaining of control over his victim, a renewed sense of power, a power fix, if you will. Living with an abuser for years can result in post-traumatic stress disorder. Living in concentration camp conditions will surely require debriefing and extended period of healing. Encouraging the survivor to talk about and write about the experience as much as possible will help the healing process. In fact, telling one's story, getting it from the inside to the outside, is the only way one can recover from the trauma. My daughters, 20 and 11 years old currently, 
and I continue to experience nightmares, though the frequency has decreased. Usually the dreams involve my ex-husband murdering one or all of us, or one or all of us trying to escape his wrath. One of his successfully intimidating warnings was, you know my wrath, a threat that he had cared to use throughout the two-year-long divorce, a threat partially responsible for cementing us to him for so long. Yes, I knew his wrath, as I know it today. Fearing his wrath, I purchased a Stetson handgun, one that fits my hands well and is easy to fire. Fear of his wrath is what has made me push back, lest he bury us all, legally, financially, emotionally, physically. I have flashes of scenes that have occurred and of scenarios provoked by my traumatized imagination. The worst and most repetitive involves my son, then eight or so, crawling away from the disgusting pretense of a father, the man crouched low so as to scream close to the boy's head, you worthless piece of shit, pussy, invading his space so as to maximize the horror and the disgrace. The scene I never witnessed, but the image was described to me by my son's older sister only a couple of years ago as we were preparing for trial. We were threatened not to tell, she added to our lawyer. He said mom wouldn't believe us anyway. She would believe him. Then he would go to her and tell her some lie about us, that he was just disciplining us. I would tell him that I was going to tell mom anyway, but he would get to her first before she even came through the door. He would always make up some reason for abusing us. My older daughter, this daughter who stood up to him as best she could, defending herself and her brother against this 170-pound violent scary man, testified on the stand under oath to some of his bizarre antics. I was so proud of her. She was 19 at the time, intimidated by his presence at the front of the courtroom, but strong and determined to help us all break free and to prevent him from being able to be alone with her little sister, 10 years her junior. Thanks to this courageous young woman, we were successful in proving his capacity and willingness to abuse verbally, emotionally, and physically. Consequently, this father must be in a room at the counselor's office, counselor in the room, in order to visit his daughter for two hours twice a month. Since he lied to the court, saying he was unable to work, I was told to pay for the visits, another example of his financial abuse, for the first six months. Under this arrangement, he saw her four times. Since he had been ordered to pay, he has not asked to see her, seven months to date. My young daughter is a different person since he has been out of her life. She would become physically ill prior to visiting him, as mandated by the court. Life is so much better now that we are almost completely free of him. What does verbal abuse look like? It's been a year and a half since he's lived in my home. It's been a year since I've spoken with him. My oldest daughter and I recently were in another state, halfway across the country, stopped first in line at a red light when we simultaneously spotted the driver of a car across the intersection who had dark curly hair and a mustache. We shared the nausea, cold sweat, lump in our throat, and shaking as the immediate response to visual symbols of our abuser. Other visual images trigger this same dreaded response. The sight of men's suspenders, the expensive ones, that fasten onto the buttons inside designer slacks, gold Toyota 4Runners, and Santa caps. Verbal abuse looks like the faces of all the abuser's friends and family. 
My point is that long after one has divorced oneself from his or her abuser, the remnants of verbal abuse may be seen anywhere and at any time. One will continue to visualize verbal abuse in accordance with the intensity of the post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that one suffers because of the abuser, which often is in direct proportion to the length of time that one has remained in a toxic relationship. As with all forms of PTSD, the recovery time may be shortened by talking about the relationship, the abusive acts, the shattered dreams, the humiliation and betrayal, even the good times and the reasons one stayed. A memory is most readily accessed through the olfactory sense, and also in alliance with PTSD, to me, verbal abuse smells mostly like my abuser's cologne. Sometimes, however, it smells like a Mexican restaurant or the chlorine in my pool. Interestingly, memories of my abuser do not smell bad to me. It smells of melancholia, at worst, of passion and longing and clean summer days, at best. Taste, however, is a different story. Verbal abuse carries the distinct taste of pungent vomit burning in my throat. It has a cold and steely metallic taste, calculated and dangerous, and as the verbal abuse melts into the physical, it tastes of warm, salty blood on a hot summer night, the shocking ending to what had seemed a near-perfect day, a mockery of the growing intimacy overturned contentment. The verbal abuser decides to control all aspects of the relationship, including the emotional closeness, which will usually wax and wane, skyrocket and plummet on a whim. This emotional turmoil serves to strengthen the traumatic bonds that cement the bizarre coupling. Verbal abuse feels like the intangible nausea that accompanies a stomach emptied by illness. It feels disorienting, the dizziness and the time warp brought on by a fever that penetrates the entire body, affecting the equilibrium and the brain. The world feels surreal at times, as if the pain were a drug administered by the abuser to make his victim easier to manage, less resistant to the next sharp attack. And the attack is always a surprise. I never knew when the attack would come. Towards the end, however, the highs and lows became more extreme, more to hope for, more to lose. Everything became almost perfect, but for shorter periods of time, again controlling the closeness of the relationship. It felt like we were almost getting there as a couple and as a family. It was always just out of reach, which I believe made me try even harder to actually make it. Ultimately, eventually, I was not even happy when things were at their best because I knew it wouldn't last. When the apex of my definitions of family and relationship would approach, he would do something to kick it all back down to zero. I became so disoriented, so numbed, spinning is the word that probably best describes my feelings, my sense of body and mind. This spinning feeling was accompanied by PTSD, anxiety, and depression, though I did not recognize these states at the time. Remember that I was very off balance and numb at the time and all my energy was apparently thrust into daily survival and functioning at work and at school as a mother, wife, breadwinner, student, daughter, peacemaker. I remember stating that I felt like a bumper car, always trying to buffer relations and actions between my husband and the children. It was like he was another child, 
I would discipline him for starting fights with and on picking on the children. Unlike the children amongst themselves, however, his harassment, name-calling, and ordering were much more frequent, almost continual at the end, and so much more intense and hurtful. No jesting nor razzing, rather pointing hits to draw blood emotionally. This leads me directly into the sense of hearing. What does verbal abuse sound like? Apart from the very obvious and overt name-calling, put-downs, and intensely angry outbursts, verbal abuse may sound like silence itself. Beside and beyond all these categories of control, two very distinctive sounds were employed by my abuser, baby talk and projection. My thinking about the baby talk is that it was non-existent at first and seemingly almost constant toward the end. I had the feeling that he had gotten better treatment, perhaps his way, when he was a child by being cute. He made this cute face, grinning just the right amount to make his dimple very apparent. Okay when he was five, but not when he was 35. Perhaps he was appealing to my motherly instinct more and more as he saw me slipping further away, losing his hold on me. And yes, even at the age 35, he continued to touch the mother in me. And I felt sorry for him, very sorry for him. But I knew that there was nothing that I could do to help him anymore. I had tried for years. I had to let the little boy go, with all his pain and hidden torturous memories undealt with, buried inside. He didn't want my help to heal, to uncover and deal with the pain of his childhood. He did want me to stay with him, but on his terms, of use and abuse. The baby talk went along with his cute expression. I remember being very annoyed when he would call me mom. I know that many men do when referring to their children's mothers, but this was different. It felt different and it came across differently. I would tell him, I'm not your mother. I don't want to be your mother. But he would act like a child and like he was my child more and more, though he knew it annoyed me and that I wanted a life partner, not another child. I would tell him this exactly. I think he wanted me to be his mother, his good mother, who would protect him as his biological mother had not when he was a child, to protect him as I had protected my own kids. Interestingly, he would tell me, don't treat me like a child. And when I would, for instance, remind him to record the checks he had written in the check register, an act he simply did not do, said he could not do, that he had tried, but he just couldn't, a phrase he also used regarding paying the bills. Secondly, projection. His projection always fascinated me, intensified to extreme verbiage after we separated, and was something that I didn't fully understand until fairly recently. If it wasn't so sad and frightening, I remember thinking and saying, it would be funny. Almost everything he said to my machine after I had stopped talking to him was projection. It was so clear what he thought of himself. All one had to do was listen to him on tape to see what he was thinking of himself at the time. He thinks very lowly of himself. Again, sad, but it appeared to be things that people, including his parents, had said to him, which he had internalized, as well as other I statements that he had come up with on his own. 3 p.m. Thank you.
recording this for your attorney, okay? Let, let's start off with, uh, if Cece's listening to this, Cece, I'm sorry, but, you know, your mother just has no morals at all. She's white trash from the get-go. I saw her home in Louisiana, and she was white trash there. She ran around on Levi and Erica's uh, father there. Uh, she ran around with every man there she could. And then uh, she get, came here, and she uh, she was white trash here. You know, she got hooked on drugs, and uh, she had an abortion, and she stole $5,000 from this one man's briefcase. And she had a part in all this. I mean, uh, if you're recording this for your attorney, I hope he does hear all this, that, you know, the truth about you, BB, that what kind of white trash person you really are. Because you are, you know, the worst of the worst. Uh, you want to be mother and father of those children? Fine. You can be mother and father of those children. I just I just think you're just totally, totally wrong. And Cece, uh, Mommy wants uh, wants me out of your life, and that's, that's what she's trying to do with these papers and everything else, that she doesn't want me to come see you, and that's why I haven't been able to see you. And uh, she's just white trash, like I said, you know, and, and uh, uh, Turkey Neck won't let me see you. That's, that's you know, her fault. of answering machine tapes I found, many which were used in court to prove stalking and harassment during my mother's divorce. The change in my father's voice from message to message is so creepy, and hearing these really reaffirmed why I was truly so scared of him when I was young. And some of these recordings, he just says my name over and over, calling to me via our answering machine at all hours of the day and night, reminding me that he knows where to find me, and the insults he passes at my mother, directly or indirectly in a message to me, are truly upsetting. His harassment extended to my family members, to my mom's favorite clubs, where she shopped, to her friends, to her work. It's truly outrageous, and you can tell he just can't help himself but from calling over and over again, trying to get power back. I want my stuff. And I'm getting madder and madder by the day. And you know my wrath. I don't want to get upset anymore. I want my motorcycles and I want my stuff. You don't keep it. It's not yours. You didn't pay for it. I want it. So either call Joe today at the law firm or, or set up some type of meeting with him and your attorney. But I want my stuff. I'm about to explode here. Do you understand? And it's get, I'm going to get, I don't want to get radical. I just want my stuff. And if you can't get that through your head, and if you're going to keep doing this, 
last message you heard him yelling about his motorcycles which that was part of the divorce as they were trying to sort out whose stuff belonged to who and he was threatening taking half of everything regardless of a prenup or anything he said in one of his messages that he was going to take half of all of my mom's stuff so I think she was just making sure it was all done legally um in this next message you'll get to hear how aggressive and manipulative he was being towards me his 10-year-old child. Prior to this, my dad was stalking me, stalking my mom, threatening to kidnap me, trying to kidnap me from school. He was breaking into our house at night. One time I woke up and he had a flashlight looking into my bedroom, which was on the second story of the house. He had climbed up onto the balcony and was looking for me in my bedroom in the middle of the night. So I was obviously very afraid of him, and even though we had a protective order against him, none of it mattered. To explain the beginning of this next message, he had left me a card that said, see you tonight in the mailbox at my mom's house. It wasn't mailed, it was dropped off, and I was supposed to have a birthday party that night, and even though we had a protective order and I hadn't seen my dad in months, he, I took it as a threat. And I was so scared that my mom insisted on me kind of canceling my birthday party and going out to my grandparents' house with a couple of my friends instead. And that night, he had broken into the house. He had broke the windows and the doorbell and all of these things. And a couple days later, he had a girlfriend, I guess, knock on my door with a teddy bear. And I answered the door, and I didn't know what was happening, but it was really creepy. Good morning, Cece. Good morning, baby. It's Daddy. Yeah, you know what? I talked to Daddy. Daddy did a bad thing. He, he tried to go to your birthday party. And that was a bad thing for Daddy to do. So Daddy can never be Daddy again, right? Yeah, Daddy can never be Daddy again. You want a new Daddy now, huh? Listen, sweetheart. I think it's really rotten the way you're treating me. Two months it's been since your birthday. More than two months. I have not seen you in over two months. And you just don't seem to care. I guess you don't love me anymore. I guess that's what I have to deal with now. For wanting to come to your birthday party and give you your presents. I send you a bear and stuff, and then you say, call me, and I call you, and you don't talk to me. It's really something for a 10-year-old to treat her daddy like that. I thought you had heart. I wouldn't yell at you if you didn't, if you just call me and talk to me. But I guess you got to make mommy happy, and that's what mommy wants, is not to talk to me, huh? Well, you're my daughter. I know that's for sure because you look just like me. The other two aren't. We don't know who they, their father is. And that's typical with mommy and her drugs. And I hope you're recording this, Vivi, because if you are, you know, let's put down everything. Let's get real serious. Put everything mommy's done. 
sure you are. Because you couldn't find a better attorney, and that guy's a piece of crap. The CCS still love you. You don't want to talk to Daddy, but I still love you. It's all right, I can deal with it. I can hang with it, because you're going to see me anyway. Because Mommy can't do anything. She's four foot nothing, and she's just a munchkin. She can't do anything. She won't be around that much longer anyway, the way she looks. I love you, baby. Have a good day. I'm going to go to work now. Bye-bye. So, against the backdrop of what we've already learned about how abusive my father was physically and emotionally, it makes these select messages chilling. And he was very scary and intimidating, and nobody knew what he was actually capable of. In the next reading, we'll hear more about how these kinds of threats affected me as a kid psychologically and the way that my mother had to deal with them. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.